This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Emily Cohen. Polarization, while to some degree always an issue in United States history, many would point to recent decades as among the most divisive in a long time. It isn't just deeply rooted in our major governing institutions, but divisions are affecting our relationships with family members, neighbors, and co-workers. According to the Pew Research Center, over half of Americans say they struggle with such tense divisions in their own families. There are numerous initiatives underway to help us find common ground, including an effort by the National Governors Association called Disagree Better. Also, a nonprofit organization called Braver Angels is trying to bring disparate sides together in groups to practice civil discourse. And the public media initiative called StoryCorps has launched what it calls the One Small Step program, recording conversations with individuals from different sides of the political spectrum. On today's Peace Talks Radio episode, correspondent Emily Cohen explores some of these initiatives and helps us all to learn about ways to have more open and respectful conversations ourselves. We first hear from Monica Guzman, veteran journalist and author of the book, I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. Guzman is a senior fellow at the national nonprofit Braver Angels, and she speaks about her organization's work bringing people together from opposite sides of the political aisle. Yeah, so Braver Angels workshops, we have something like 50 different programs ranging from skills building workshops to our very popular debates. So a workshop, maybe our most signature one is called the Red Blue Workshop. The way that one works is you start off with a small group of reds, so conservative leaning people, a small group of blues, and they do what's called the stereotypes exercise. So they each kind of separate out into rooms and they make a list of, you know, if it's the reds, what are the stereotypes that the other side holds about us? And then the blues do the same and they have this other column. So you list out the stereotypes and then you list out what are the corrections that we would offer that stereotype? And then there's a third column. What are the kernels of truth to this stereotype about our side? And then the two sides come back together and they go through their list together. And each side is able to witness the other humbly admit to the shortcomings and the complexities of their side you know, in the public eye. And so that starts you in a place of humility. And then you go into this exercise where each side asks the other, questions where they really want to try to better understand how they came to their views on climate change, on abortion, on whatever it is. Now, this sounds like it might happen very quickly, but it takes several hours because it's it can be hard to come up with a question, for example, that is not accusatory or gotcha or cornering people, but is actually driven curiously, meaning that it's trying to close the gap between something you know and something you want to know. So you describe yourself as the liberal daughter of Mexican immigrants who voted for Trump twice. And you talk with your parents about politics. And you have a good relationship with your parents. How do you do this in a civil way? What advice do you have? Yeah, so there's lots of things that we can try. Some of them are really technically quite simple if they are psychologically difficult. So when you are talking with someone and you want to jump in with your opinion, if you can make yourself ask one more curious question first, then you you spend more time listening to the other person. And research shows us that people hear better when they are heard. 
So the more time you spend listening to someone, the more likely that they will listen to you. It's not a guarantee, but it happens. Another thing is that curiosity is contagious. So if you use what is sometimes called hedging language or more flexible language as you express your own opinion. So for example, you know, not like this is this, but rather, you know, when I think about it right now, here's how this is coming up for me. But what do you think? And studies show that using hedging language does not make you seem weaker or doesn't make your your sort of, you know, command of the subject any less. Um, instead, it just, it becomes this, this contagious thing where the other person is more likely to use that sort of language with you. And you're not talking in absolutes. So you're able to really explore each other's perspectives. Um, so that's two. Uh, but one last one that I'll say that's helped a lot with my parents. I once asked her, what do you think, mom? Like, <laughs> while I was writing my book, what do you think has helped us? And she immediately said, without skipping a beat, we acknowledge each other's good points. And I realized she was mm -hmm. right. We really do. A lot of people don't want to say that's a good point or I see what you mean or anything like that because they think that's giving ground. It's not giving ground. What you're saying is I see something about what you're saying makes sense to me. What that does is it encourages the other person to go deeper, go farther. Right. So these are these are just a few strategies that help a conversation become more curious and more flexible and more about exploring perspectives rather than performing perspectives. Can you elaborate a little bit on how to realign our conversation approach, how to shift our own perspective? So our instincts in conversations of disagreement, especially when we're really, really, you know, attached to our point of view, like many of us are and kind of should be, is we want to change the other person. We want to change their mind. And we believe we're right. And maybe we are right. But that's we come in wanting to change the other person. The beginning of that difficulty that you face there is when you're trying to change someone, you can't understand them. You're not trying to understand them. And if people don't feel heard, why would they want to be influenced by you? So that's the first thing. Often we come in with the question, why, right? Which seems like a perfectly curious question. Why do you believe what you believe? Some version of that. But across a big divide where there's suspicion and distrust, that's a pretty loaded question. And it can make people feel like they're on trial. They're they're being put on the stand. They have to defend not just their position, but themselves, you know, from attack from you. A person is going to think about, okay, what are the talking points that I've heard out there? Let me just grab those and shoot them back at this person, you know, with a lot of confidence. And, and it doesn't usually end up with a lot of understanding. But if you switch the question from, from why do you believe what you believe to how did you come to believe what you believe? What you're doing is you're inviting each other to be storytellers. And it just so happens that we're each the reigning experts uh, on our own story. So how did you come to believe what you believe is a completely different question. You don't you don't have to go and, oh, my God, what's the strongest argument? I need to have it right now where this person's not going to think I'm good or smart. Instead, you go, well, you know, like this happened to me and I have a cousin for whom this issue is important. And I once came to a you know decision point and I made this decision. And suddenly the person listening to you, they're not arguing, they're relating, right? They're, they're, they're visualizing your story in their own minds and they're forming connections with you as a person. And so when you do that, uh, debate becomes a lot more productive. What about with the media? We are often siloing ourselves with what we consume, what news we read, what news we watch and listen to, and we're in echo chambers. How can we better or more consciously engage in media so that we are exposing ourselves to the other side and being open to other points of view? Yeah, I think with all the focus on conversations across the divide, we often miss 
the very the most important conversation is the conversation we each have with ourselves. So anytime you're talking to somebody else, anytime you're reading an article, you are having a conversation also with yourself. So this is the conversation I think we have to do the most work on. When you are reading an article, the next time you find a headline that represents a popularly held view that you can't stand, you know, that really, really wrinkles you. The thing to practice is reading that article, not looking for ammo for your own view, which is most of our default, <laughs> but rather asking yourself the question, what are the deep down human concerns, honest concerns that are animating this point of view? Now, in an article, that can be really hard sometimes, you know, mostly because you have your own resistance to this point of view, like, this is stupid, this is terrible, this is evil. <laughs> and so you have to question that within yourself. You know, is it, is it, is it, um, is this person really crazy? What, what, what if this is a good person with a different point of view? What then, right? So so you question those assumptions, you, you allow a little space to build, and then you're able to listen. Now, you'll also maybe run into anger. A lot of commentary online gets attention by being very rage-filled, right? And you can even apply curiosity to anger. There's an author I really love named Valerie Cower, and she says, anger is a force that protects that which is loved. So if you see anger, ask yourself, what is this person protecting, trying to protect? What feels under threat, right? And that kind of listening, if you practice it with an article, that's actually a really, really great way to slowly build up the muscle to do it in a conversation. So there's a lot of initiatives right now. There's Braver Angels, One Small Step, and groups that are working to mend division. Yet at the same time, division and the divide between red and blue is actually growing. We're siloing ourselves. What do you have to say about this? Yes, it is true that blue zip codes are getting bluer, Red zip codes are getting redder. We are sorting ourselves even more into like-minded groups. It's hard to blame us for that. You know, there are some real-world consequences. There are some laws in different states, you know, that mean a lot to people. They want to be where, where they're comfortable. Um, and that's just a, a human instinct. What I think is, is changing dramatically is awareness of the problem. I mean it when I say dramatically. I think across politics, media, and then just around the kitchen table, we can see a little better the monster of toxic polarization and how it affects us. We're talking about it more. We're raising that awareness about what it means for our own psyche and how we approach the world and what assumptions and fears and certainties and questions we allow ourselves to have. So I see so much evidence of that. Just to give you a quick you know, example, the Republican governor of Utah, Spencer Cox, uh, is, is sort of making himself a champion of better disagreement. And he's the chair of something called the National Governors Association, all the nation's governors. And their initiative this year is entirely about disagreeing better. So I know from other programs, including One Small Step, that it has been historically hard to recruit conservatives to these sorts of programs. How has this been for Braver Angels? And how have you confronted this challenge? You know, recruitment of on a lot of levels into this movement is a challenge, um, but one that I think is the most important to confront because it teaches us the on-ramps that people need onto this. Um, one thing at Braver Angels that we have is something we call the Braver Angels rule. So at all levels of leadership, we need to have 50% liberal-leaning people and 50% conservative-leaning people. That is the most important 
rule in our organization. And it is true. At the level of our grassroots alliance, uh, at the very highest level, it's 50-50. It's always evenly split. We did a convention in July at Gettysburg. We went to the site of the bloodiest battle of our civil war to try to prevent another one. We had 700 people evenly split uh, in attendance between liberals and conservatives. So there were more liberals who wanted to come to the convention. But when we hit a certain point, we said, you can't come liberal unless you bring a conservative friend. So we were able to maintain that even split. Um, I'll say this, that, you know, from from the many conservatives I've talked to, there's so many different reasons. We all have our reasons to resist, you know, this work. And sometimes they're good reasons. And for many conservatives, they're just going, why would I want to put myself in a room where all this contempt and shame will be thrown my way for what I believe? Uh, and so I think that's something that the blue side, I'm on the blue side, uh, has to wrestle with. And and this is one of the barriers, I think, especially in organizations where it's mostly liberals at the organization. Uh, conservatives are afraid that they're going to be just made to feel bad about themselves. <laughs> and that's just something we all have to work on. Good advice. Well, anything else you want to add? Uh, just that, just one thing, which is that a lot of people think that this kind of thing, you have to be some Zen master of curiosity and be remade in the in the garb of <laughs> better listening all of a sudden and overnight. And it's just not true. Uh, this is about small steps. I mean, one small step kind of sums that up, right? So it really is. It's asking one more question when you want to jump in with your opinion. It's engaging one more person. It's building short bridges, you know, not going to the person that you're most afraid of disagreeing with, but somebody who with whom you agree a lot, but there's this one issue. It's finding the little incremental ways that you can build more curiosity, build up that muscle, and then over time be able to tackle some of the big bridges if you want to. That was Monica Guzman from Braver Angels, a nonprofit citizens organization uniting red and blue Americans in an effort to depolarize America. Monica has a new podcast called A Braver Way that aims to equip people with the tools that they need to cross the political divide in their everyday lives and confront the barriers in their way. Well, when you find yourself in a tense political conversation, do you dig in or do you run away? Do you present facts and figures to make your case or speak from your heart? Next up, we hear from Allison Sperry, a Wyoming-based documentarian and social worker, about her experience facilitating conversations in Jackson, Wyoming, for the One Small Step program. Now, One Small Step is an initiative from StoryCorps that brings strangers from the same community together for a conversation, not to debate politics, but to get to know each other as people. One Small Step is based on contact theory, which states that a meaningful interaction between people with opposing views can help turn thems into uses. Since its launch in 2021, over 3,400 people across 40 states have participated in a One Small Step conversation. Allison Spiri walks our Emily Cohen through the One Small Step process. The first thing we have people do is just identify why they wanted to have this conversation. So they're sharing their motivations and immediately you're seeing, ah, oh, we came here for the same reasons. And then this really interesting but awkward thing happens where I ask one participant to read the other participant's self-written biography. So it's written in the first person. I grew up here, I learned this, I do this for work. The person who's reading that aloud is not the person who wrote it, but they have to read it in the first person. And so they're literally putting themselves in the shoes of another person, of the person they're looking across the table at. It's awkward. 
I always have to remind people, please read it exactly as written. Yes, you're going to read in the I statement. But I really think it's um, a psychological practice that seems so subtle to really shift the dynamic. Then we ask people to talk about influences in their lives. So when we talk about politics, we're not asking people to state their political positions. We're asking them to identify when was the first time they became aware of politics and how did their community and their upbringing influence that. Every question the participants ask of each other is formulated and written down uh, by StoryCorps in advance. They're open-ended questions and both participants are given the same questions. So there's a lot of, and you, (laughs) uh, when, when they're answering a question. They're also asking it of their partner. So I paired two dads together with a 30-year age range where both had individually expressed to me that their kids had come out. And religion was very important to both of them, but their religious beliefs had shaped them very differently in their politics. Um, So I was excited that that conversation would likely lead to talking about LGBTQ rights um, and homosexuality and uh, within religious frameworks. And it, it went there. And that conversation was such an honest exchange between two men about being fathers, wanting to do the best for their children, coming from such ideological differences. Do you think that conversation made a difference in their lives? I think so. I have spoken with both men since, and although they haven't connected with each other, I know the door is open for that dialogue to continue. Uh, And especially for the younger dad, I think he really appreciated the way that the older father, with his wisdom of experience, was listening to him, was hearing him out. Do you think these conversations, these one-on-one conversations, are making a difference on a broader scale in our community, in our country? I'd like to believe so. If anything, it's just practice for talking with someone in a respectful way. Some of our law enforcement agents have treated it that way. Chief of police has signed up and encouraged other officers to sign up to practice the skills of listening. To that point, what advice do you have for people who are going to engage in a conversation with someone who has different beliefs from them. Stay curious. Really try to ask questions that help to guide the conversation towards getting to know how and why, even the where of how that person got to believe what they believe. When people are speaking in platitudes about what they believe, it's helpful to ask, and why is that important to you? Tell me about when that belief really solidified for you. Or So curiosity. So curiosity is really important because then you're not assuming that you know anything, really. I think even as well as we think we know people, they can surprise us. Anything else you want to add? So StoryCorps Uh, has been working with individual communities through radio stations, but is also expanding this program because of the tremendous interest in it 
to a sort of DIY national level. You can go to storycore.org and check out the do-it-yourself version of One Small Step, where you can get matched with someone on a national level to have one of these conversations virtually, but still to be able to participate and to stretch and grow yourself. Allison Sperry with our Emily Cohen talking about the One Small Step program. And now let's hear a sample from one of these One Small Step conversations featuring two fathers, Mark and Andy, a generation apart and politically and religiously different, who happen to both work as guides on the Snake River in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. A couple questions came to mind. The first one was just intrigued to hear a little more about your family, who they are. Yeah, got two boys and three girls. We've probably overdone it with the outdoor adventures <laughs> as a family. And the kids that are teenagers now, I ask them to do more outdoor adventures and they tend to resist. I feel lucky and fortunate when they do say yes. So we get to do stuff together here in Jackson Hole, like go for a bike ride or float down the river. As a parent, I've made an effort to really try and do a lot together but maybe I overdid it a bit. <laughs> or they're just typical teenagers resisting. Well, I think I am. <laughs> um, as a teacher or coach, I've spent many years with teenagers, so probably they're, they're quite typical. Okay, that's good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> what role has faith played in forming your moral compass or your belief system and your politics? So it's had a, a strong influence more historically than, than in the present day. I started college in 1971, um, grew up in a, a Lutheran household. Wisconsin. Wisconsin, yes. <laughs> when I first went to college, I became involved with Lutheran campus ministry, met Carl Jeck. You wouldn't know him. He was the Lutheran minister. He's also, and is, he's 80 now, but is gay. He was able to help me connect the dots that doing social justice work can take place not in a vacuum, but within the context of one's faith, that one's faith can lead to advocating more for justice in the world. And for me, that led me into doing this really 50 years of advocacy work around LGBTQ issues. Ah, 50 years. It's a multi-generational journey, I think. Oof. The only multi-generational thing I got going on is my faith. <laughs> yeah, what what better place to, you know, put your energy and look to the future now that sure. I mean, your, your children are launching. I, I'm sure you have hoped that you've created a framework for them that gives them a, a center and a moral compass that they can follow. Yeah, I had hoped that. But lately, I think that, yeah, I struggle with that because I think like my teenage daughter who's 18, she has, I don't know how sincerely, but she's expressed how she's bisexual. And I've tried to not react in a strong way. Um, I've had to probably resist a little bit of my natural reaction to that. Of course. <laughs> and... I think that my 15-year-old daughter definitely has some appearances of being uh, homosexual herself. She seems to find within me some some strong bias, you know, that's not in favor of homosexuality. Um, and that's probably based on my religious perspective, for sure. Or so the, it's interesting. With your daughters, are you still able to engage in conversation around that topic? Yeah, yeah, we can still talk a little bit. It's, <laughs> it's hard for a parent, I mean, it's so teenagers hard. to talk to them about <laughs> anything. 
Right. Yeah, I worry about talking too much or saying the wrong thing and pushing them away or getting mm-hmm. them to shut down for sure. Um, <sighs> tell me more about your um, Lutheran faith in God and what you were mentioning and uh, how that drove you to want to advocate for LGBTQ uh, minority. Going into college, I was considering the ministry okay. as my vocation. Um, I, I shifted off that path over time. Um, yeah, but I felt what I learned growing up in the Lutheran faith is, you know, compassion, caring for those among us who are less fortunate. Yeah. And it just ended up centering on LGBTQ issues. Yeah, I was deeply involved in that work um, when my daughter came out in 1996 here in in eighth grade. Um, She raised her here? mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, she came out of the closet. She did. I gotcha. 13 years old. Okay. 1996. I bet she felt alone. It was interesting. She had a very supportive school system. It showed, you know, the value of just having adults in one's life that will, you know, accept you for the journey you're on. Sure. And you were already at that point. Uh, Do you think that you led her to that in any way? Or it was all her? No, I don't. I taught middle school for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, I think middle school students, 11, 12, 13, they're not so focused on math, on history. <laughs> they're, they're, for, they're focused on their hormonal development. And I, for me, my belief is that you know, people know who they're attracted to, who they're not attracted to. So yeah. I, yeah, I, don't, I don't believe I led her to that, that place. I, I think that's organic with who Britta is. I, I think she may have gained value in growing up in our household where it was in a way a non-issue right it it is an issue for my own children for me and so it is something i struggle with as a parent i feel responsibility to uh guide and direct my kids towards what i think is the best what i think is correct or right or true and i try to be more open every day but like you historically or the heritage that i have of my faith is you know considering homosexual acts as a sin and so I would try and steer my kids away from that sin. So it's hard for me to, um, I haven't gotten to that place where I'm okay with them saying they're bisexual or whatever. Right. And, (laughs) you know, we're all in the place we are. Sure. I find that you're listening very intently and I appreciate that. So um, thanks for your patience. Maybe it's the start of a future conversation. Yeah, for sure. I would would welcome that. Yeah, I would too. Thanks. That was an excerpt from a recent One Small Step conversation, a StoryCorps initiative that brings strangers with different political affiliations in the same community together for a conversation. You can find links to this program on our website, peacetalksradio.com. And in part two of the program, coming up next, we'll hear more about how a StoryCorps initiative is working in Congress, as well as how one state's governor brought a team of rivals, a la Abraham Lincoln, together in recent years in the name of good governance. Stay tuned. And now with a few minutes left in this segment, let's go to the Peace Talks Radio Music Library to hear part of this apropos song from Keb Moe. It's called Talk, from his album Peace, backed by popular demand. How's your father? Is your mother all right? 
know I was with my family just the other night. We're in the middle of a revolution. Creating even more confusion is more the only answer. Why don't we talk to each other? Let's talk to each other, that's all. Why don't we talk to each other? Understand one another. Talk to each other, that's all. There goes the Navy sailing off. This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with correspondent Emily Cohen, here with part two of her exploration of ways to find common ground in an era of acute political and social division. As we heard Emily's guests in part one suggest, one of the key themes is to stay curious, to question our own assumptions about others, and to ask questions that get at the how and the why when we might disagree with another person's viewpoint. In this part two, correspondent Emily Cohen speaks with Ron Gunsberger. Gunsberger is the chief of staff at StoryCorps. That's the national nonprofit media organization that records, preserves, and shares the stories of Americans from all backgrounds and beliefs. Its mission statement is, quote, to help us believe in each other by illuminating the humanity and possibility in us all, one story at a time. Before joining StoryCorps, Ron Gunsberger, a Democrat, served for eight years as a senior advisor and political director for Maryland Republican Governor Larry Hogan. Ron comes with a wealth of experience navigating political divides, working as a campaign manager or senior strategist on more than 130 campaigns for centrist, good government candidates. As a child and grandchild of Holocaust survivors, Ron is acutely aware of what can occur when people lose sight of their shared humanity. Gunsberger describes to Emily Cohen the climate of debate and openness in the Larry Hogan administration in Maryland from 2015 to 2023. 
Two-thirds of the cabinet members and his senior staff were Republicans. But the other third were Democrats and independents because he actually felt it was a good thing to have different views at the table, especially in his case, where he was a Republican governor, the only the second Republican governor to be reelected in the 200 plus years of the state of Maryland. And he had a Democratic uh, super uh, majority, uh, you know, veto proof majority legislature that could do whatever they wanted. Um, they could override vetoes if they chose to. So we had to find ways to get our agenda passed, working with Democrats who ultimately didn't want him to succeed. But after in a second term, when he was term limited, they were willing to work a bit more with us. But he was an example of how you can govern if you don't look at the labels and you just try to figure out decision by decision what seems the best or what is your core principle and what are the things you can compromise on because it's not a core principle and they want this so we can give them that and we'll get this and what you can work out. It's how government's supposed to work. I mean, it gets back to the old uh, description of politics that politics is the art of the possible and the governor's one big goal was after 40 plus tax hikes for the eight years before he came in under the previous administration, that he wanted no tax hikes. And not only did we get no tax hikes, but he actually was able to get through, as I point out, a veto-proof Democratic majority legislature. He got through the two biggest tax cuts in the history of the state of Maryland. So he got a great amount of his agenda done and was done by working with people across the aisle. One of the lines he liked using was, Ideas should rise or fall based upon their merit, not what side of the aisle they come from. It sounds like he created a team of rivals, kind of like what Abraham Lincoln did with his cabinet. Oh, he did. And he actually would love to see the debates at meetings, at senior staff meetings, that he would push back. And I know everyone going, well, what about this? And how about that? And what about that? Because he wanted people to defend their positions and make the case. And as the staff is debating the points in front of him, he's listening to it and kind of thinking it through. And sometimes we'd even have follow up ones and follow up ones because he wanted to continue to basically flesh out the points and have these debates. He thought the internal debates were healthy for foreign policy. And I think they are. Can you talk a little bit about that dynamic and any lessons that people can take in their own lives about how to listen and also how to ask questions, what kinds of questions to ask to challenge another person's point of view, and maybe their own. By training, even before I working for Governor Hogan, I, I've, I've been a campaign manager. I, I was a trial attorney. I was in senior government. I was actually a senior commander at the third largest sheriff's office in America. The approach that always has worked for me, because the question just asked was, rather than, well, mind you, I certainly have, I certainly have opinions. I certainly know what I think might be the right solution for X, Y, or Z, but I'm willing to actually be persuaded I'm wrong. But the best approach I have when I'm listening to someone else making their case or when I truly don't know is to ask questions rather than say, no, here's why you're wrong. If you start with the, no, look, you're wrong, here's this, you're just going to put up walls and no one's going to get anything done. But if you ultimately take what I often call the Columbo approach for an older TV reference, the, well, I, maybe I don't understand this. I'm a little confused. Wait, so how would this work if this and this and this, but then how would that part work? And you start asking the questions and they explain. And if you can do that well, often one, you might get yourself educated and, and decide they're right. 
Or two, if the points you're making can connect the dots well, without me having to say it, the other person will actually come around to going, you know, actually thinking about it. And it's that kind of dynamic that does better for, for, but not only for policymaking, just for interpersonal relationships in general. Um, I, I could joke, I'm married 36 years. I think these approaches work in, in life as they do in government, as they do in the workplace. Where does all of our division in your mind come from? Is it because we're not somehow learning to think critically or ask questions? I think questions are a good way to diffuse situations if you if if you want to get something done. Now, some of the people in politics today on both sides of the aisle don't want to get things done. They'd rather get the sound bites and be on TV than actually legislate or do something, than actually do their jobs. And a, a great example was we do one that, that essentially is a one-off, but we do it with members of Congress from across the aisle and have them have conversations. And we do that also because some of the studies, the ones done by More in Common and some of the other groups, are showing that the behavior of the public has become so toxic, this polarization, because they see their leaders acting that way and they're following their leader's example. And so if we can flip the dynamic and they can see leaders acting well, it might promote better behavior too. So we're doing this in Congress. And a great one we did recently was between uh, Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, a Democrat from Virginia, and Congressman Blake Moore of Utah. And he's a Republican. And he said the thing he likes to do when he goes back to his district, when he speaks in front of different groups, is to say, who here has heard of Marjorie Taylor Greene? Put up your hand. Who's heard of Matt Gates? Put up your hand. He says, then I mentioned names like Jason Smith or Kay Granger, two of the most powerful committee chairs, and not a hand in the room goes up. He goes, no one knows the people who actually do the job and do the work and make it function and fund the budget and do all these pieces, but they can all tell you who are the bomb throws you get on TV. And he says, that's part of the problem. I, I think that's actually a big part of the problem. And if you look back historically, the period of time in this country that we all have gotten along, generally gotten along, versus the times that were terribly polarized, the good times are a lot less than the bad times historically. We had a very long period that was good from essentially the New Deal all the way through the Kennedy era. And then the Vietnam War helped break that down, and Watergate helped break that down. And then we had a better relationship again from the Reagan era for a period of time again, until we got to the more modern era when it just, maybe with the Tea Party movement, even before that, kind of the Newt Gingrich effect on Washington of how it all became much more personal. That's where I think it largely changed and the public follows that. But you go back to Thomas Jefferson and John Adams are probably going back a little far here. But you go back to them and they were horrific to each other and their supporters and what they would write and put out and the accusations that were very personal, more than some of the stuff you have now. And it was so bad at that time. See, I'm, I'm going to dig into my history books here. The Alien and Sedition Act, when one side was trying to literally arrest the other side, including elected members of Congress, just for opposing them. That that alone is how bad it got. 
So we've had bad periods. We had the bonus army when we sent the National Guard out after World War I during the Depression, basically to suppress veterans who were seeking a benefit they thought they were promised. We've had violent periods and harsh periods. We don't want to get there. But there are ways to get us back there, but it takes leaders demonstrating it too. And it takes the public wanting it. And I think the public wants it. The problem is the 80% that want it aren't the ones we hear from every day because they're not sexy on the news. What's sexy are people yelling at each other and making news incidents and throwing things and politicians acting badly. And until we start punishing bad behavior and rewarding good behavior, right now the opposite happens, it won't change. There are some examples. I mean, in North Carolina last year, the example I give you was Madison Cawthorn, who was one of the bomb throwers in Congress. He only lasted one term. He got dumped in his own primary by someone probably equally conservative, but who was a serious legislator in the state legislature who just said, I'm going to go and actually do the job. You know, I'm not going there to be on TV. I think everyone knew who Madison Cawthorn was. I don't think many people in the country know who Chuck Edwards is, now the guy who beat him. But I bet you the people in his district do because he's probably helping them more than the last guy did. So when we get to a point, he's an anomaly right now. But when we start promoting good behavior and there's a reward for good behavior, it'll help. And one other person who deserves a brief shout out is uh, Governor Spencer Cox of Utah, that he's using his uh, chair's initiative. And uh, the vice chair of the National Governors Association, also Jared Polis, a Democrat from Colorado, they're both involved with this. But the chair's initiative that Governor Cox is doing is called Disagree Better. It's not that we have to agree with each other. He says we don't need a kumbaya movement. We don't need to come together and meet somewhere in the center. Having two different views that we all hold and two different parties that are advancing different agendas is healthy for the country. We just have to do it in a way that's productive, thus his disagree better idea. So one small step is part of where we need to go. Disagree better is part of it. Braver Angels is a part of it. All of these groups in the ecosystem, more in common, I can go on and on, because there are probably 100 plus groups involved in the bridging ecosystem of trying to stabilize civil society in America, that we're all in our own way pieces of the puzzle. And like any real puzzle, when you have enough of them coming together, the picture becomes clear and it helps everyone get to where they need to go. Today on Peace Talks Radio, you're hearing our correspondent Emily Cohen speaking with Ron Gunsberger, Chief of Staff at the StoryCorps Recording Project. He's formerly been a campaign manager or senior strategist on scores of political campaigns and for many years, the Democrat on the staff of former Republican governor from Maryland, Larry Hogan. Back now to Emily's interview with Ron Gunsberger. So it sounds like you're saying that division is really part of the fabric of America. It's part of our our DNA in some ways. Although there is concern that we're as divided now as we were before the Civil War. It goes back to the start of political parties, the thing George Washington warned about. In the beginning, there was only there was no party. You, they just were all elected officials. Ultimately, over time, you had essentially the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, and they'd ultimately formed into parties. And once they formed into actual factions is when you started getting rival newspapers. The Fox News and MSNBC of their days, you had a, a newspaper publisher named uh, Calendar. He was horribly vile 
And at one point he was on one side, and then at some point he got burned by that side and switched sides. So then he became equally vile on the other direction. But it was the most scurrilous newspaper you could imagine with the stuff they put out. But it was ultimately parties and a tribalism. People get really worked up about the sports teams. But, you know, at the end of the day, whether Team A or Team B wins, does it really matter all that much? No. But people get very, very worked up on it. You'll get bar fights over, you know, the Yankees, whether you love or hate them, or the Red Sox. People want to feel a tribal affiliation because it helps maybe give them some more meaning and some identity. It helps fill in some identity beyond what they're doing every day. And they like the strength in numbers. And I think party does that, too. And if parties went back to being healthier and being more focused on what they each want to achieve and move away from, one, it being so personal in the attacks now, and two, election day is a zero-sum game. Only one can win. But once you're in office, at least for that term, every day shouldn't be a zero-sum game because it shouldn't be, did the Democratic Party win in the House today or the Republicans or in the Senate? In between, it should be, are the American people winning? And we lose sight of that when we're only trying to put points on the board. And you see it in the public's approval rating or lack thereof for our elected officials. By the way, and for the other pillars of our society, too. Journalism has been trashed in the public perception. Policing has been trashed. The idea of putting people down in a room together to talk and just have normal conversations is just one key step to starting again. Because... Like our founder, Dave Isay, always likes to say, it's hard to hate up close. And when you get to meet the people across from you, it helps. And in Congress, what's even worse is a lot of them actually do like each other, but they can't admit it publicly. And so they'll sound terrible. And then behind the scenes, they get along just fine. But that doesn't help because the public only sees the bad behavior. And that's what they're following. Could you talk a little bit more about the congressional version of One Small Step? How's that working? And I'm curious, how many conversations have you had? So far, I mean, it's hard to get one. It's hard to get them to do them in part because just dealing with trying to schedule a congressman or a congresswoman is hard. Trying to schedule two of them with competing congressional schedules is even harder. The joke is everyone that's actually been recorded probably has happened on the third or fourth try because we schedule it, and one pulls out the day before because they now have to do something else. So schedule schedule's the one big obstacle. Two is finding the members willing to do it. And in the beginning, they didn't really want to because they weren't sure how it was going to look. And then they've seen the product we produce, these audio cards, we call them those little three-minute videos from it. And they said, oh, this looks pretty good. And so now we have more of them interested. And we, we, we've now done about 10 of them, but that's 20 members. And then we have a bunch more in the pipeline, none with dates, but all saying they now want to do it. I won't use the names of the ones who haven't done it yet, but very surprising names probably for some people who are more, much more seen as on the fringes. Some probably for their own self-interest or for re-election, they want to look a little more centrist or anything else going into an election year. I get that too. But you know, if it serves the greater good of emulating good behavior, it's better for the country as a whole, even if they have another motive also. One of the ones we did that's online was a great conversation between um, Dean Phillips, a Democrat from Minnesota, who's a center-left guy, and Tim Burchett from Tennessee, 
who is probably one of the three or four most conservative members of Congress. He was one of the eight who brought down Kevin McCarthy, but he did it because he's a total budget hawk and he didn't like any of this budget stuff. And he brought it up in his conversation, too, with Phillips. For the guy having a sense of humor, but also still seeing the value of this, when he walked in and he came up and introduced himself to me, stuck out his hand and says, hey, I'm Tim. Uh, I'm a far-right extremist, but, you know, I like talking to people and I like what you guys are doing, so let's do this thing. I thought that that was a good start. And during the conversation, because the two of them had some really good chemistry, when Burchett said, you know, I'm pretty far to the right, Phillips actually interrupted and it was kind of funny. He goes, you're so far to the right, I can't even see you at my peripheral vision. <laughs> but it was a great conversation where they really got along well. The whole idea is, and he says, look, when we agree, we agree, we disagree, we disagree, that's fine. If we can't act the way we're supposed to act, how can we expect anyone else in America to do it? One of the other conversations we had, another congressman after it was over, was saying, I like what you're trying to do, but he goes, maybe I'm just too much of a pessimist. I don't think we can get back to normal. That's what he called it, get back to normal when we all can just kind of get along again until we either have something horrible like another 9-11 or I don't know, but the Martians invade us. That'll bring us together. He goes, and I don't want either one of those. So he, he goes, but other than that, I think we're so broken. I don't know what it's going to take for us to fix it. And they acknowledge it, but I think, they don't know the answer either, but they want it better. So there was a recent study that found that these conversations are having a difference, that they're creating more empathy for people on the other side. Can you talk a little bit about that study and some of the surprising findings, particularly for people who are conservative? It's a study done of our work to validate it. And we actually do validate it in three different ways. Dr. Jen Richardson, who's the country's leading probably expert on contact theory, which is about how you change people up close. She's doing surveys of participants before and after and then down the road after even further. So that's part one. Part two is we also have more in common that does its own separate studies of our work. And then and using Dr. Richardson's, using other parts of data, the day, data points they look at. And then the third is we even use um, traditional political polling in the communities that are model communities to check the impact year over year of perceptions on, are we getting along better? Are we more divided than we've ever been before in my community? Because we have four model communities to, that we operate in. We're in Fresno, California. We're in uh, Wichita, Kansas. We're in Richmond, Virginia. And now we're in Columbus, Georgia. And so those are kind of laboratories and we get to see how it works up close to tweak and change things as we go along to make sure we're the most effective we can be. And the interesting stuff is after your conversation, in almost every instance, they come away liking the person who sat across, across from them. The liberal will like the conservative, the conservative will like the liberal. That is not a huge surprise because using these conversations, if they go the way they thought, when we try to pair them, we do try to see if there's some commonality. Um, maybe we notice they both have been Marines or something like that at one point in their lives or some some kind of connections. They both like fishing or they both recently lost parents or something to where they find there's a common element. And it gets them talking about things in their lives and, and they can see ultimately that I might not agree with them, but this one's a good person. I like her. I like him. Now, what's fascinating and 
I don't think it's done yet on this part, but here's the part that's fascinating. What the study has found, what Dr. Richardson's study from Yale has found, or the actual participants, is virtually all show empathy, greater feelings of empathy for the person who sat across from them. What we are finding is statistically significant feelings of empathy for people on the other side in general. But it's going more one direction than the other, because I know that's where, you, that's where you're going. And what surprises people is it's the conservatives who are showing much greater feelings of empathy afterwards for liberals than liberals are towards conservatives. Now, I have my own theory about this, and it's one we want to test further. But having talked to Dr. Richardson and others, they think there might be something to this approach. The suggestion is this. You have to look how someone defines themselves, not how you want to define them. Because when you cast aspersions on the other side, it's just never going to work. But if you look how a conservative defines themselves, and it's a word they often use, they see themselves as a patriot. And even some of their movements and their committees, they use the word patriot. And a patriot is someone who loves this country. And if you look how they define themselves, if after the conversation, they decided this person across them is a liberal, but they are supporting all these things because they want to make America better, they're just horribly wrong. They can see them as a good American, just one who's horribly wrong. And so I think that's what's going on there. And I think on the other side, it's much more tied to the causes. We need to fight gun violence because people are dying. We need to protect women's rights when it comes to choice or other things because it, it, it's destroying their lives. We need to increase social spending or provide a single payer medical system, Medicare for all, because that's the only way people will have health care and housing should be a right, et cetera. These are causes. And if you don't agree with them, you're still just wrong. And I think that's one of the differences. And both sides are sincere, but I think that's why we're seeing more movement so far on one side than the other. We are seeing liberals showing some increased empathy towards conservatives as a whole afterwards, but not at the level yet that conservatives are showing towards liberals. And that and that is fascinating. So one can small step conversations are with people who don't know each other, strangers from within the same community. What advice do you have for entering into conversations with people that we do know? Well, one, if you can't get beyond it, talk about other things in your life. If all Uncle Joe wants to do is talk about everything he's heard on, whether it's Newsmax or MSNBC, whichever side he's on, and how horrible the other side is, it's going to be a hard conversation and a long night. But if you go, look, we disagree, I get that. But what else is going on in your life? Talk about the things that matter. Talk about your kids. Talk about your work. Talk about your hobbies. You know, you have any vacations coming up? Where'd you go this year? There are a whole lot of things to talk about that we that are nice and safe ground. Actually, one of the members of Congress used this in, in, in her conversation, saying that, you know, in normal life, if you go, hey, what do you want to eat tonight? And you go Chinese and I go, oh, I don't know, sushi. You're not going to go, us, I'm never talking to you again. But with politics, we just cut it off right there. And if we can't have a rational conversation that doesn't end up in either yelling or mean feelings or you're hurt, Find one of the many other topics out there. And if you have nothing else to talk about but politics, 
then maybe you need to actually re-examine your own life a little bit too. And I'm a political person, but I can talk about lots of other topics too, because if it was only politics, I probably would have been divorced years ago. That is very practical and good advice. Ron, is there anything else you want to add? I'd actually encourage people to go actually go to takeonesmallstep.org and sign up for the program because beyond the communities we're in, we have an app that would in beta testing now should be out within a few months. And we'll be able to facilitate conversations even that way between people and, and match people up. We can do some that are virtually, but sign up, get involved and talk to people about it. And it's not just us. Get involved with us and do a conversation. Get involved with Braver Angels if they're in your community. Get involved with every one of these other groups. Start on your block, depending on the kind of neighborhood, whether you live in a city or in a rural community. But if you live in a city, one of those communities, start a community garden or do something like that in your swales where all of you can do something to come together. Find things to just bring people together. Because if we go back to being a community again and we can see the humanity in each other, it doesn't just make for a better country. It also enriches our own lives and, and you'll be happier and your neighbors will be happier. And, you know, frankly, if your neighbor has a Trump sign and your other neighbor has a Biden sign, good for both of them. And at the end of the day, you still get together and have a glass of wine or whatever else you want to do because you're still a decent person and they are too. And, and that should be the underlying message for having to remember. But find ways to, frankly, strengthen that fabric of society that weaves us all together. And that's through, like I said, those human connections every day from the little connections to the groups we belong to. And, and that's what people need to do. Well, that was Ron Gunsberger, Chief of Staff at StoryCorps, speaking about political division and his work trying to cross the aisle. Find more information about Ron and all of our guests from both parts of this episode at peacetalksradio.com. That's where you can also go to hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2003. See photos of our guests, read and share transcripts. You can sign up for our podcast and make a donation to keep this nonprofit program going on into the future. Find it all at peacetalksradio.com. Contact us with your questions and comments by writing info at peacetalksradio.com. That's info at peacetalksradio.com. Support to keep this program going comes mostly from listeners like you, but also the Albuquerque Community Foundation Ties Fund. Nola Davis-Moses is our executive director. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. Our supervising producer is Jessica Tickton. For correspondent Emily Cohen and our co-founder Suzanne Kreider and the rest of our crew, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.